Hi there, I'm Jordan Bonaparte, and on my show, Nighttime, I seek out and explore Canada's most fascinating stories. Nighttime stories are told using intimate discussions with those affected. They left you there. That was the last time anyone ever saw her. Jailhouse interviews with those held responsible. The context of that meeting would be some kind of mass shooting. And any other way necessary to get you to the heart of the story. You can join me by subscribing to Nighttime wherever you get streaming audio. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. Listen to the 48 Hours podcast for shocking murder cases and compelling real-life dramas from one of television's most watched true crime shows. Go behind the scenes of each episode with award-winning CBS News correspondents and producers in Postmortem, a weekly deep dive. Listen to 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts. It's Dr. Scott. I'm here with... Hey, it's Dr. Shiloh. Welcome, everybody. It's another episode in our Vintage Crime series, just up to our necks and craziness from the turn of last century here in (laughs) Southern California. It's crazy stuff and fun. Yeah, it is um, much different than, you know, what we're experiencing in today's day and age. I feel like things are sort of kind of moving forward a little bit with amusement park supposedly opening up restaurants a little bit gyms right right? well okay so yeah let me do full disclosure and tell you this week so i had a, a day off from work and my neck was completely out and so i was able to get into my chiropractor's office that has opened up with all these safety protocols and 
got like the Theragun treatment and got to lay on the rolly bed and get my neck all cracked and everything. And I was like, Oh wait, the gym across the street, it's open. This is great. I can let me go over. I mean, I can't work out cause I'm not ready, but let me walk over and see what the hours are and see if it's the same people staffing the front. And of course I walk in and the same great staff there that were, have been there for years and they're wonderful. And I'm like, so what's going on? And this, they tell me the hours and like, do I have to make a reservation? Is there a limit? And they're like, no, we've got a lot of airflow and we're taking this precaution, that precaution. Then I look around and like the place is packed with probably already about 40 people. And it's a big gym, but there's a lot of people at the front because the doors like are the just hardcore open. gym rats. Exactly. Because this is Gold's Hollywood, right? Yeah. So, and everybody's masked up and they're all jacked. Like they're what? all jacked and shredded. And I'm like, what the fork? What have they been doing this whole time? They've been working out the entire time. I had to trundle my lard ass across the street, slowly roll myself up a pair pair of stairs, force like the blob, like the movie, the blob, force my way through the door. And then what are the hours in his place? I I wanted to go home and rage eat Cheetos, but I'm glad it's open. I picture all of them just through the pandemic doing just like full on prison body weight workouts the whole time. Seriously. Well, you can. Yeah. That's when, when I worked at the prisons, there was, what is it? I think it was called the naked warrior was this whole workout book that every, every one of the inmates knew backwards and forwards. And it was all body weight exercises and yeah. But why does Crazy. it have to be naked? Mm, well, <laughs> yeah, you want to look know. good naked? I mean, is that... I don't know. I don't know. You don't want to see prisoners naked. <laughs> let me tell you. You don't. As, as, as hot as Chris Maloney was in Emerald City. Was it? No, Oz. That was it. Oh, Oz. No, yeah. Oz. Yeah. It's, it's, not it's not generally like, the like that. Is that what you're saying? It's, it's not like the movies. <laughs> anyway. Well, Crime Con is moving ahead, it sounds yeah. like. So um, we still have our tickets and I have airfare and hotel set up. So I guess we're going to hear what precautions they're taking before we move forward, but it's looking pretty good. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I wish I could commit. I can't commit yet. I just don't know. I got to think about it. And maybe, I mean, I will say this, like the expediency and rapidity of the vaccine distribution here is in the U.S. is just like taking off. It's fantastic. But we also are going to be coming to the end of what's known here in the U.S. as spring break. And yep. there's, they've already, like I just saw on the news that they had to shut down uh, and put curfews in Miami because there are so many people coming in, crowding, nothing. And this, and this was bad last year because they were able to trace infection rates of vacationers that then went back to their home states and became, because it was super spreader events, basically. So I know. anyway, that means, that's a the long way of saying there's a lot of factors that we have to consider in the next couple of months, but I would love to go if it's possible. Yeah. And Well, I think, you know, we don't have the pressure of, of having to be there. We were just really going as attendees. So even if it's a smaller event, that's kind of nice just going and checking it out for us for the first time. So yeah, we'll see and we will keep we'll everyone posted. Absolutely. Um, I did want to say, and I'm so embarrassed because usually I'm, I'm, I'm way better on top of this, of keeping email communications with our listeners, which we just love. And, and thank you everyone for, for reaching out. After our infanticide episode, where I used a metaphor and the example in the classic tragedy 
Medea to talk about infanticide. I got the most lovely, educated, and professional schooling by one of our listeners. And I'm so sorry, I can't remember your name. Please send me an email again if you're listening about looking at Medea through a modern lens. And her take was phenomenal. It literally shifted my perspective on it in a way of seeing Medea as not this rageful, angry person, but a woman who had been stolen away from her homeland, basically kidnapped in a coercive relationship, and then has no way out but to act out in violence. And I mean, it was just an amazing communication from this listener that made me look at this classic in a different way. And all I could think was like, oh my God, if if I had had a classics professor like that in my undergrad, that would have yeah. been way better to have uh, someone <laughs> school me like that. So thank you. Yeah, that was really neat. Uh, a couple other like housekeeping things before we get started. Our merch store, which is on Public, we were having problems with searchability of just being able to like throw in LA Not So Confidential and not using a link directly and not being able to find our stuff. That seems to be remedied. So there are a ton of different, obviously, pieces of merchandise up there, but also different images and graphics. All of the new ones, you have the old school ones as well. And just click through there and see what there is. I just got a purple zip-up hoodie that has like our color blocked logo with like the black silhouette. So that's just something I love to throw on in the morning or even just work out in at any time. But I'm like, I'm going to get a fun color. I'm going to go with purple this time. <laughs> yeah, there's some really cool choices. And I mean, I think it'd be, you know, make sure you click through before you buy anything choose the design you like and then click through the colors and see which one yeah. works the best because yeah. basically it's all it's all computer organized and the computer's not going to weed out the ones that don't look the best so you have to right. make that decision for yourself Yes, lots to choose from. And then uh, the day after this episode comes out brand new on the March 25th, we have our Patreon watch party. So even if this comes out and you're not a Patreon member yet, you can certainly sign up right away and then you'll have access to our watch party of the musical Chicago. We had a great time with our first watch party with our Patreon members. And we're really looking forward to this one. It's going to be a regular thing that we do. So please join us. We'd love to have you. Yes. So moving on. Oh, okay. Let's give trigger warnings. What are we, what subjects do we need to really kind of prepare people for this week? Dr. Shiloh? Um, you know, we're going to be talking some violence. Besides murder. violent murder. <laughs> Uh, obviously, you know, there, there wasn't a ton, I think of just major trigger trauma warnings here. Aside from that, I think there's a couple of things that I know that right off the bat, I'm definitely going to be talking about a very old resource of ours and going to be use, using the word prostitute a lot. Yeah. Please know that is just taken from the period of time when I use that. And it's just from the research literature does not match the more appropriate term of sex worker, of course. Well, thank you, because that's what a lot of, uh, several of the research points that I'm using are either situated in research within the last 10 years that's looking back on the turn of the century, or we're looking at some really old and very archaic stuff from the late 1800s into the 1930s, which is just infuriatingly sexist and outdated, but it's important for people to hear this so that you understand the context. 
Definitely. So I think that's it. We're going to be talking about where this is one particular area that we've been in, in this particular series looking at uh, female perpetrators at this time shows that in a lot of cases, there was no research at the time at all. And there still is a, an incredible lack of research to be representative of what's actually happening in the community. And we just don't sure. have that. Yeah, and we've we've touched on it in a number of different ways in past episodes, whether it was our female uh, sexual homicide offenders episode or even just going back a few to infanticide. I mean, three out of these four of the vintage ones that we're covering have to do with a female perpetrator. So you're getting a little bit of that throughout this series. But today we're going to be talking about another Los Angeles murderess. Clara Phillips is her name. We want to go back and just lay a foundation a little bit more about women and violence and what we know. And I had actually purchased a book, which took forever to get here. And I did this as research from one of our episodes that we're, we were planning on doing on the history of sex work that we are still going to get to soon. But it just got here and it took a couple months to get here. And I think it's just kind of hard to find. It is called Criminal Woman, the Prostitute, and the Normal Woman. And this was written in 1893 by Cesar Lombroso. So, I mean, we all know that there's really only three categories of women, right? And I think he totally nailed it. He's like, <laughs> what, we, it's what, was 1893? I mean, we don't need anything newer than that. that I mean, r- yeah. That wraps it up, right? I He could have just done two, criminal and normal woman, but he even found a category of its own prostitute. So if the name Cesar Lombroso sounds familiar to a lot of our fans and true crime aficionados or criminal justice majors, It's because he was the Italian criminologist and phrenologist in the late 1800s. Do you have your phrenology head behind you? It is. It's right, right over my uh, my right shoulder there, wearing (laughs) wearing a fedora that you won't let me wear anymore. (laughs) Oh no, you cannot wear that. So his theory of anthropological criminology essentially stated that criminality was inherited, and that someone who was born a criminal could be identified by physical defects which in his words confirmed that a criminal was a savage or atavistic, which is when a genetic trait has been lost through evolution and then at some point down in lineage kind of reappears down the line. Which is a big, that's a big trope in literature that like that madness skips a generation, but then exerts or, you know, magical powers or something like that. That's been used a long time. Yeah, yeah. So he he was a, a, an MD and a professor of forensic medicine and eventually became the head of an insane asylum in Pissarro, Italy, where, of course, he conducted much of his research. And he has a lot of research on the male criminal and, of course, probably because of the accessibility to women at this insane asylum had, you know, the ability to conduct a lot of research with them as well. And I can imagine the types of women that were being sent here back then being involved in sex work or other types of crimes or mentally ill. So he's quite famous for his anthropometrics. So basically measuring the human individual in some way. He did this with the insane, with the criminal, including head and bone structure, like phrenology, and really looking at aspects of the body to determine if criminals were, quote unquote, different than 
quote unquote, normal people. So he looked at everything. I mean, he looked at face structure, brains after death, leg circumference. He actually, it was funny because when this book is hilarious in a lot of very twisted ways when you read through it, because it's just a straight translation of his work. You know, this is old, old stuff. But he was talking about when he was looking at measuring leg circumference of the criminally insane against the normal woman. And he was like, it was really hard to get normal Italian women to volunteer to come in and have specifically their upper legs measured. Like they were kind of okay with the calves and the ankles, but he's like, I can only get 14 women to measure uh, their uh, Please come into my laboratory so I may uh, measure your leg. <laughs> I know, I know. This was just such a good read. I was so happy that I found it. He looked at wrinkles, the density and color of women's hair, moles, hairiness, you name it. This guy really, I mean, and we know from his work with with men as well as women, he really was examining the human body to see if there was anything different. Some things that he really spent a lot of time on were cranial capacity, and that's the volume of the area where the brain is. And a lot of this was done post-mortem where he could examine the skulls, examine the brains, get all of his measurements. He found in his work that prostitutes had the smallest cranial capacity, quote, in average and above average capacity, honest women and even lunatics surpass both criminals and prostitutes. Oh, so I know, I know, um, so. honest women. <laughs> He's veered from just the normal part, um, but now they're honest, I guess. Um, when it came to criminal women, he, I thought, I thought this was really interesting. He found that the women that were poisoners had the largest cranial capacity and thieves had the smallest. So he's insinuating basically. Yes. He he's got, right? it's almost like a confirmation bias. Like totally. he's saying that if you're going to be a sneaky poisoner, that's going to take strategy and intellectual capacity that just being a pickpocket doesn't or being a thief. I mean, right. I, that's at least that would be my assumption. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's so completely wrong. I mean, there's so many things about a, a relative uh, comparison of populations at that time, even down to just nutritional. Like, did this individual that you did the autopsy on have access to a, any kind of near balanced diet that would have contributed 100%. or affected brain capacity. I mean, not, not even brain capacity, brain volume. Yes. This is such bullshit, but you know, well, that's, that's history, right? It's I mean, it's a this start, is, right? Yeah, it's a start somewhere. Exactly. Exactly. Um, he said when he, when he looked at other uh, facial and features on the head that prostitutes were wider across the cheekbones than other group, the lower jaw of female criminals and prostitutes were heavier than quote unquote, moral women. Picture a lot of like taking things apart and weighing them and then like making these assertions. Female criminals were shorter than normal women. And then when he compared female murders and prostitutes, they were heavier in weight than normal women. Oh, here we go. Back to the legs. Prostitutes uh, had bigger calves than everybody. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't even want to make a joke. It's just so annoying. I know, I know. Interesting though, he looked at wrinkles. I said, I mentioned wrinkles and I was very interested in this being a, a woman over 40. Now I'm like, Ooh, tell me which group had less wrinkles. <laughs> <laughs> he did. He really, he admitted when he didn't find significant differences, he, he would say that. And he really didn't find anything super significant except female criminals had 
slightly more crow's feet type wrinkles. And he just had a sentence that literally was three words. Prostitutes lacked wrinkles. They, I don't know what's going on there, but something's happening. Um, they found well, the, did the they, magic cure. I mean, but I mean, is there any correlation with the subject's age? You know, were they younger? I, mean, I, I think that sex workers at that time probably had a shorter lifespan due to a number of factors. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot. I, look, I, whether this is true or not, or what he even knows true. what he's talking about when he says wrinkle, like, right. I don't even know. Yeah. Um, but what he found for female murders specifically, just a couple things. So we already talked about, he said that they weighed more than normal, quote unquote, normal women. Murders along with poisoners and arsonists specifically had the highest cheekbones. So again, I'm, I got, I'm all ears with cheekbones and lack of wrinkles here. And that murderesses, whether it was violent or otherwise, like poisoning, had a more, what he said was a degenerative type of face meaning they looked old, worn, or ugly. And I thought that is so interesting because perhaps women who were perceived as beautiful just weren't being taken seriously as criminals or weren't being prosecuted. You know, who right. who are right. they really choosing to say is somebody that's capable of this? Maybe somebody that doesn't fit their definition of beauty. Which is obvious here in like even the European and American history of witch trials is like focusing on women that were unattractive or considered unattractive or irritable or whatever. That's an easy scapegoat to place your place your blame on. Yeah. I mean, it is, it, it's interesting work and schools of thought and fields of study have to start somewhere. And that's how I see this. It's a right. very basic, let's just look at the outside of this human being to see what's going on. Well, that whole And then we start of, looking inside. Yeah, that whole field of study is very interesting because of even some of the machinery that was developed. Because I'm not sure if Lambrosa was using this, but I do know in America when phrenology was taking on that you would they would have their subjects sit in a chair and be surrounded by a metal halo with adjustable metal rods so that they could they could literally do sort of almost like a holographic measurement right. of an entire skull and see, oh, well, look, there's a there's an indentation in their prefrontal cortex. So, of course, they're going to have impulsivity and, you know, just making huge assumptions about sure. the shape of people. <laughs> so you were talking about what is was perceived on the outside a, a few years later and, and talking incorrectly about the inside as well. Sigmund Freud in 1924 suggested that menstruation reminded women of their inferiority and that that inflamed them towards revenge. Emphasis on the word inflamed. Oh, yes. Have a flaming, flaming womb. And in 1931, um, in a criminology course, Dr. Paul E. Bowers seemed very saddened by the fact that so few deserving women were executed. He said, you know, we hate to send a woman to the penitentiary. We ha hate to electrocute or hang women. We think it's the wrong thing to do. We have to admire Al Smith when Ruth Snyder was convicted of the killing of the husband of this other woman. Al Smith didn't give her a reprieve and allowed her to go to the electrocution and she should have gone. Many women have been convicted of murder, but it is only very rarely that women are hung or electrocuted for committing murder. There is a really good point there, and I, I, I place that here particularly because in this series on vintage crimes at, in the 20s, we do see a lot of that. That I mean, although there are people that are sent to hang, there are some really brutal crimes, including the one we're talking about today, where the, the perpetrator only served a handful of years, and then they're able to 
get out and disappear right. into society. Well, so, and last episode, if if you haven't listened to it, you know, go back and listen to what we say about how men were the only ones were allowed to serve on juries and how their thinking was about women basically being incapable of pulling off violent acts. And, you know, if that's problematic, then even sending them to be executed, I can imagine, was problematic. Yeah, there and there was this also this classification of what they thought women were emotionally capable of, which was very limited rather than a full spectrum of emotions or being, you know, I think it's this sort of this contradiction in a perception of a woman at the time where they were overly emotional and just all over the place. But when it came down to making a legal judgment on a crime, then it must have been born out of being mad or sad, which is forgivable if someone does something when they're mad or sad, as opposed to a criminal rage. And if you had a defense attorney that could frame it in that way, it might change the outcome. So or, even, it, it, I'm sorry, just one last yeah. thing here. It's almost as if they're, well, of course, then and continues that women are still seen as second-class citizens, but that she is so incapable that they're almost putting her on the same level as someone who's developmentally delayed and like, ugh, we don't want to execute those people. You know, like, uh, we don't know if she's fully capable of understanding of what she did. And not that we're advocating for the death penalty, but talking about like this double standard of how men versus women are viewed. Right, well, because that can have larger implications for for law. And certainly it did at the time. And I, I think that that's what the quote that the criminologist Paul E. Bowers was talking about earlier. But, you know, even after World War II, there were really prominent criminologists who linked female offending to what they would consider to be the biological nature of individual women. So Pollock, who was reflecting on this in a paper in 1961, said, for example, he argued that women's offending was more of a concealed and fraudulent nature than men's. And according to him, this was a natural consequence of women having to conceal their menstrual cycle and their sexual desires. Oh, my Lord. I mean, even so... Even in the six, I mean, he's 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 talking about something earlier, and I'm not sure if Pollock sure. is actually. Well, I guess he is. He's arguing it, so he's saying yeah. it himself, which is just like crazy to think that that was like just a handful of years ago, just 55, 56 years oh, ago. Lord. Yep. So a clear and incorrect focus on the sexual behavior of women even further leads to this misinformation. Girls and women, has it's been argued that they have to be restrained from expressing and experiencing their sexuality for the sake of their own mental health and their own physical health, because these types of temptation lead to behaviors of the men and their surroundings. Mm -hmm. So women were seen as both condemned and incarcerated for actions of a type that was seldom subject to control among men. But it's also, I mean, it's really interesting because we had an instance of this in our last episode of It's all circling around again because this is very big in some of the schools and certainly in some of the religious-based schools across the country of shaming young women for what they wear to school and having these really strict wardrobe rules that are absolutely insane because it might distract the male students or might distract the teachers. Yes. It's the same same kind of thing. Yep. That well. I mean, that's a lot of pressure to put on us. So maybe this is a natural consequence of us having to suppress all of that. Right, I guess. Well, that's what that's how you get a la that, right? Lizzie Borden. No. Right. 
<laughs> just too uptight. So another researcher in 1991, uh, Zedner, was saying that up until the 19th, the mid-19th century, the predominant approach to female criminality was moralistic. Women criminals were judged against a highly artificial notion of the ideal woman as being an exemplary moral being. So what you were saying earlier, going back to that idea, this weird sort of definition of moral, what does that mean? I mean, that that could be flexible to anyone at that time, or, you know, one person could feel very differently about what that represents, right? Sure, yeah. So women's crimes not only broke criminal law, but they were viewed as acts of deviance from the norm and expectations of traditional femininity. So this double breach of norms has meant that the stigma associated with offending has been assumed to be greater for female offenders than for their male counterparts or peers. So it's like oh boy. you're not only you're not only deviating from social morality by taking someone's life or stealing someone's purse, you are sinning against your own womanhood. Right. Is, How dare you make all the rest of us women look bad? Exactly. You 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 are making my mother look bad, which would I think would be the way, you know. Yep. An analytic of you would be, of it would Jeez. be, and one of the worst examples of the sequelae of these views on female offenders was a movement towards sterilization campaigns all through the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and this was very closely akin to those that were directed towards the mentally ill and other marginalized communities. So, really serious stuff. As much as we like to laugh about it, like there, we've and we've talked about this before. There are some horrible things that have been done in the name of moral progress through the years. And this is a particularly bad one. So a modern understanding of the intersection between female perpetrators and jealousy is usually, even though there's not a lot of research on this, it's directed outside the marital dyad. So that's what we're going to be talking about today with our particular example, that in intimate partner violence, we have a lot of research on male perpetrated violence on females. We have a good bit, but not nearly enough on female perpetrators of intimate violence on their female or male partners. Mm -hmm. What we have almost no research on is taking that anger and jealousy and acting out on it outside the marital dyad. We've got some, but there's not a lot. So going back to the 17th century, uh, Robert Burton, I'm going to quote him, those which are jealous proceed from suspicion to hatred, from hatred to frenzy, from frenzy to injury, murder and despair. <laughs> so I say that because I love that it. it's like it's not snapped. I like it too. No. It's, you're progressing, right? You're progressing along this line of violent thinking. Yes, yes. I like that too. And I think for some individuals, of course, depending on a myriad of factors and traits very specific to that person, jealousy and these sort of... Uh, Love triangle situations can absolutely start to consume some people. And I think it's really interesting for him to say, you know, just starting off with just jealousy, which all of us have felt, all of us knows what that is. But for some folks, it ends up following this other pathway to where it absolutely consumes them. And they're, again, like I, I'm even thinking of this now, like that crossover between homicidal ideation and suicidal ideation. And a lot of suicidal ideation can be uh, triggered by the loss of a romantic relationship. Right. 
So it's, I think he, you know, for the 17th century, he's kind of spot on there. Right. And remember, it's funny, I was not thinking of this until just now, after we've pulled all our research together. Remember the case recently, the military case of the couple that were dating, they're both military, and the the female in the relationship just cannot let go of her anger towards her boyfriend's ex-girlfriend. So the two of them go and murder her. So that's a whole other thing of this, not only of this anger and this rage directed outside the dyad, but at a relationship that actually no longer exists. Right. Was that in our our Dexter episode we talked about? It might be. Yeah. Because there was a, there was a lot of rough stuff that was done to her body. I mean, they really hit it. But so in a recent study of jealousy, um, it was found that 15% of men and women reported that they at some time had been subjected to physical violence at the hands of a jealous partner. The anger stirred up by jealousy could, in theory, have as its objects both the partner and the supposed rival, but in practice, it is the partner, not the rival, to whom the violence is usually directed. So what we're talking about today is sort of an anomaly or there's not enough research on it. So on in 1933, there was a study of 17 cases of homicidal jealousy, And in 14 of them, the victim was the partner. So it was directed within the dyad instead of outside the dyad. And the majority of published studies kind of suggest that those who usually fall victim to jealous violence are the female partners of jealous males. Well, that, Mm -hmm. of course, that's like a a duh point right there. So in this model, female jealousy would be directed at ensuing continued access to the resources represented by the male for themselves and for their offspring. Sexual fidelity and women's greater concern with emotional attachment and relationship security. I don't know about that. I mean, that was stated in 1994. It's not that long ago. I think they were trying to find like a biological model of like, why would this person get so angry? And maybe it's a biological imperative that I have to take out my rival in order to have my my partner here, who is the one who goes out and feeds me and clothes me. It just seems like a very caveman approach. And I didn't really see a lot of support for it. But But we also see kind of a a similar biological imperative theory when we look at the men who are acting out in jealousy against female partners. And it's kind of like, well, I have to keep as many partners around, you know, to be able to take care of and uh, procreate with. And there's there's also those theories that are out there. You know, of, of course, we know there's more. <laughs> there's always more that comes with it and that makes that up. But I think it's really interesting that there is one for males, there's one for females to at least consider what is something that's going on innately at a very primitive level. What was the one that Reed Malloy talks about when he's talking about psychopaths, like male psychopaths kind of spreading their seed because, isn't it because they're incapable of actually making long-term emotional connections, so there's a drive in them to procreate impulsively or something? That sounds right. Um, It might be specifically with uh, psychopathic rapists. So, yeah, yeah. Something okay. like that. I don't know. Anyway, I don't want to. So, I don't want to commit to it too hard. Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll tighten that up later. So we're going to just entitle this next narrative as Clara, the car, the claw hammer, and the escape. Oof. It's a lot. So on a Wednesday evening in 1922, a man named Armor Phillips had come to a really big decision, and after a lot of thought, 
many years of frustration in his marriage, many being a relative term because it was really only a couple of years. He realizes that he has to leave. He has to leave Clara Phillips, his wife of several years, and finally fulfill his need to be with the woman of his dreams, Alberta. Alberta Gibson Tremaine Meadows, who now resides at Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Glendale, California. Oh, dun, dun, dun. And well, she's been this there. a long time ago. They're all dead. They're all dead, but she was there a particularly long time, unfortunately. Armour Phillips, he's described in all of the materials as a being a, a big, young, handsome guy, very well-dressed working as a salesman in the oil fields, which were very uh, prosperous out here at that time. Although he was not a particularly successful salesman, and there was a lot of talk about that if, their, if the relationship with his wife had been better, that maybe he, had, he would have been uh, more successful in his career. And then we have Clara Phillips, the woman that he had married. Clara was described as a lovely, dark-haired, dark-eyed woman with a tantalizing and hypnotic smile and also a very rough background history that did not emerge until much later after the trial and adjudication. We also have Peggy, who was a friend of Clara Phillips. Peggy was described as just being a kind of a passive, mousy little woman that hung out with Clara and got entangled in a web that Clara was able to weave about a crime she committed. And then also we have a side player. What's that? I said, oh, Peggy. Oh, Peggy. You got to have better judgment in your friend. (laughs) We we could all learn from this, Peggy. (laughs) We've all been a Peggy. (laughs) (laughs) We've all been Peggy. Uh, And then we have Jesse Carson, who is a surprise player with a, a male with a lot of confidence who just sort of shows up out of nowhere in the middle of all the drama yes. I'm about to explain. So um, I want to give a shout out to a wonderful out-of-print book. This is from Los Angeles Murders. This is Chapter 2, entitled 1922, Clara Phillips, by a really great, very descriptive uh, writer, George Worthing Yates. So I'm going to be pulling a couple of quotes because I love the way he writes. Pull a couple of quotes and then jump into bullet points about what went down with this crime. He starts out his chapter with, It was the long hour, the blue hour, the hour when Los Angeles seemed to wait without breath while enormous night gathers strength and shapes itself. It was early on a Wednesday evening in July 1922, and the customary high fog was clamping down over the raw city like an iron lid on a pot of stew. Wives all over town poked at stuff on their kitchen stoves and waited and wondered forebodingly what time to expect their husbands home and in what condition. A fair number of husbands and lonely and untidy living rooms brooded over the funny papers and traffic mortalities and wondered to the same effect about their wives. Armour Phillips' husband was wondering about his wife. So I love that paragraph. I know. I like, I want everybody to go find a copy of this book because all of it is written this way and it's fantastic. So basically the story is, is like this, the relationship between Armour and Clara had been fraying for a while. Armour's ready to toss the relationship. And although a lot of this, of course, is shrouded in history and really the archaic prose of the early 40s talking about the 1920s, it seemed that Clara was not the easiest spouse to live with. She was described and or the descriptions of her behaviors really paint a picture of an individual who was impulsive, argumentative, dismissive, and distant, that she didn't seem to be invested in really any part of the marriage. But again, this is looking at the situation through modern eyes that are likely sexist and not seeing the big picture. You know, if different authors could have told different stories about this person. Sure. Um, for Armour, it was likely that it was just a better idea for him to cut his losses and get out, say, hasta la vista, I'm gone. At this point in time, this evening, his mind is made up. He's going to scrape up some money from somewhere, and then he is going to leave Clara, 
pick up the woman of his dreams, Alberta Meadows, who was a young widow, 20 years old, living alone and supporting herself as a bank teller. They had come across each other in a chance meeting and fallen in love, and he was ready to remake his life. He's getting ready for Clara to come home, tell her that he's getting out. He hears a car pulling up, which is interesting because Clara doesn't have a car. Okay. Here's the door opening Hmm. and closing. Here's footsteps coming to the front of the house. The door slams open, and Clara's standing there. So he's ready. I'm going to tell her I'm ready to go. And then he notices that she looks really strange. She's got a weird, intense look about her, and she's excited, kind of trembling. And then after a moment of uncomfortable silence, she states, something terrible has happened. And Armour responds, what? Clara says, you should go look for yourself. He walks outside the little house. And as he walks past her, he notices that the entire top of her dress is spattered with blood, dried blood across her torso. He walks past her, goes into the yard. He recognizes the car. It's a little coupe that he has been in several times and it belongs to Alberta. There are smears of blood on the hood of the car and inside the seat on the upholstery. And on the seat itself, he sees Alberta's purse. He's completely in shock. He walks back in the house, stares at Clara, and she says excitedly, she's dead and I killed her. So he doesn't know what he's doing. He's like trying to process like what's going on. He stammers and he says, well, what are you going to do about it? And she says nothing. Hmm. And I don't mean she doesn't say anything. Her response is nothing. Nothing. I'm going to go to bed and I'll uh, go to headquarters in the morning. Huh. So, you know, I, I've read an account of this and there was another report that says basically she comes home, tells him, I took care of this little problem and I'm going to make you the best dinner you've ever had. <laughs> and I'm like, what is happening right now? Both of that, these accounts are hilarious. But I love it. Was that from newspapers.com or? No, it was something that you had sent me. Okay. Um, yeah. Because we got like seven different articles and like once again, it's all fascinating, but it's so far in the past. Yeah, they're with all so many different. versions. Yeah, it's so hard to tell. But oh, I don't know if I'd be <laughs> willing to eat anything at that time. And you're gonna love it. And you're he's gonna like, love yeah, I am. <laughs> okay, whatever you say. Right. So, and remember, this is Hollywood in the twenties. It's the birth of the entertainment, the movie industry. Tons of people moving to the West Coast, thinking that they're going to be a star. You know, a star of their own lives. And it really, there is a lot of in some sort of implicit understanding that Clara had come West with aspirations to be a performer. And she was given the standards of beauty at the time. She was quite attractive. She was, you know, had a nice figure. She had a beautiful smile, uh, big dark eyes. She had dimples. And prior to marrying Armour, Clara had supported herself as a chorus girl in Hmm. various shows around the Los Angeles area. So she had her foot in. She probably had really good calves. Lombroso would have given her a... (laughs) Put her in a category of Clara. We got to measure your calves. <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah, I, I I love how you make these connections, Doctor. I know it's uh, what I do. But look, dis, dis, despite the fact that she said she was going to go to the station the next day, that is definitely what did not happen. Oh, and so, no kidding. No kidding. We're never going to really know what the conversation was that transpired between the two of them. But early the next morning, Armor and Clara left that house with her driving Alberta Meadows' car and approximately 30 miles to Pomona, where they abandoned it. He followed in his own car mm-hmm. and took her back. And then yes. that's part of the next part of their journey. I know exactly. So they they abandoned it at a place called the Greek Theater. 
which I, I grew up for a few years in Pomona. And it's this old outdoor theater, which is not used as that anymore. But it actually became a satellite office like an offsite office for the Pomona Police Department. <laughs> so literally where they dumped their car from this murder was all these decades later, Pomona Police Department property. That is crazy. I've I been love there. that. It's kind of funny. Yeah. So Armour has a, an assignment now, apparently, and he is chasing down all of his friends, relatives, anybody that he can beg or borrow enough money to get Clara out of the country and get her to Mexico. And Mexico would be very, was was a good choice from a strategic position for a couple of reasons. It's close to Southern California. Mm -hmm. There's rail transport that only has a couple of stops before it crosses the country line. And at that time, due to political strife between the two countries, there was no extradition treaty from Mexico. And this was something that they were definitely taking into account. Like, let's just get you across the line and I won't have to worry about, we won't have to worry about you getting pulled back in the U.S. to face the charges on this. So apparently, like within the span of 14, 16 hours, Armour, that that meal must have been really good because Armour is like totally on board with this now. I mean, this is his ticket to get rid of her. All he has to do is, I wonder if she was like, hey, I'm going to implicate you in this somehow because... He wants to leave her. He was planning on leaving her that night. Why not just turn her into the cops? Right. Well, I, I think what does emerge is that he has a lot of ambivalence as well as some really poor decision-making skills. I mean, she's impulsive. He's really not making some good decisions, which are going to be coming, emerging in the next part of the story. So he buys a ticket for her to Mexico that's going to first make a stop in El Paso from... I think it was even, I think it was like Pomona or one of the places the train stops outside of Los Angeles proper. So at this same time, the next morning in East LA, in an East LA area um, on a road in the rolling hills there called Montecito Road, which was un- unincorporated and not developed, a couple is sort of taking a, a morning drive and they come across a dead body, a crumpled body laying on the side of the road. And they had to drive off because, of course, no cell phones. They alert the police. The police send a unit. And they observe what they described as a young woman, attractive, maybe 20 years old, dressed in silk underwear, fashionable clothing, but other than that was unidentified. And it was going to be hard to identify her because the woman was described as being brutally beaten and disemboweled by a lethal instrument of the approximate character of a claw hammer. Whoa, that's hardcore. That sounds like an awful scene. It does sound like an awful scene, but I want to say something very interesting. After I put this all together and then I went and was trying to look for images of Armour and Clara, I stumbled upon, I wasn't planning on this because I'm not really sort of into this morbid aspect of it, but I found a picture of Alberta at the morgue. And Mm -hmm. she has been, clearly she had been beaten, but her face was still recognizable. I mean, it wasn't. Okay. Well, to me, it was, I mean, I'm not encouraging people to go out and look at these awful pictures because, you know, we've all got our limits and I completely understand that. But, But once again, the perspective of history talking about something, did they describe it that way for dramatic effect? Either way, the victim is now dead. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. 
You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. No matter how far you run from them, childhood tragedies have a way of catching back up with you. So is true of elite scuba diver Veronica West, who's about to encounter something unexplainable at the bottom of the ocean, something that will draw her back to her home on Sinclair Island, Maine. There, she'll lead a dangerous rescue mission to the bottom of the Bay of Fundy, home of the world's largest tides, and something horrific down in the depths. Listen to Narcosis, the latest horror fiction show on Realm's premier horror channel, Undertow. Narcosis is available now. Search for Undertow or Narcosis wherever podcasts are served. If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. I want to interject here just to talk a little bit about forensics at this time in the 20s, because it was a really interesting time. I mean, we're seeing a lot of structure and systems around crime scene forensics. And this sounds like being out in the open, being in the elements, there's some sort of instrument used here as a weapon, as well as, you know, the injuries to the body, that there's going to be a lot of forensics that can be done in this case. And I know we're going to get to what actually happened. So, by the 20s, the microscope has been greatly improved to show a lot more detail. And then we end up getting the spectroscope, which was strictly experimental in the 1890s. So now in the 20s, the spectroscope is able to actually identify brands of gunpowder or unusual chemicals. So we're looking at the world of chemistry um, sort of overlapping with science to where forensic scientists are using this in their crime-solving techniques. And the chemicals used in forensic testing were more refined and less prone to contamination. So they're starting to get really good systems here to be able to make this work and it not just be pouring some of this and that and seeing what happens. By 1922, we had the formation of the New York Bureau of Forensic Ballistics. So ballistics starts to become its own specialty within forensics. And it's there that the comparison microscope ends up getting adapted for ballistic use. So basically what they're able to do is take this microscope and look at side by side. They're looking at gun barrels, but then they're also able to look at projectiles from weapons um, that have been fired to look at them side by side to see if they match the markings of the barrel. Ballistics has always been really interesting to me. 
I think, you know, this is so cool to say that it goes all the way back to New York in the 20s. In about 1923, we start getting blood typing being able to be used for checking blood type. All You know, obviously they're just using the smallest samples and it's just ruling people out. It, it's not doing much more than saying, okay, this is type A. We're looking for type O. We can rule these people out. You're not actually doing any matching necessarily. But then by 1925, Japanese researchers discovered that a large percentage of the population are secretors. So, you know, this is kind of the precursor to what we know as DNA is that we start looking at blood type and other types of bodily secretions to be able to use this in forensics. Secretors are people whose blood type can be determined from their samples of other fluids like saliva or semen. And in fact, in 1928, the Japanese solve a murder using this technology and knowledge. And then we have fingerprints is another area that we think of when we think forensic science. And by 1920, Edward Henry's fingerprint registry system was being used all over the world. Prior to that was the Bertrillian system. It got discarded after Henry's system was be was able to make like three times the amount of identifications than the Bertillian system was making. So, you know, the, I'm not going to go on the ins and outs of it of swirls and ridges and all of that, but he added more elements to be able to it's be more accurate. so fascinating though. I mean, just like everything you're sharing right now, the idea that all of this was happening so quickly mm -hmm. with nothing really to this level or caliber in the decades previous. And like suddenly it's just the zeitgeist and there's an interest in it and, and development of these techniques and new chemicals. It's kind of all coming together at the same time. That's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. It's like zero and then boom, they're, they're starting to say like, how can we use this here? What, you know, it, it's just, it's, it's a very exciting time in terms of forensic science. Around this time also detectives were getting better trained in the use of the camera and how that could be effective in their investigations and crime scenes. And in the 1920s, the camera itself, it was lighter it was more sturdy, more reliable, and in the darkroom, photography developers were able to develop more techniques to extract more information from a photograph. So they could increase contrast to distinguish between vague details or see wrinkles or blood stains on a pillow, for instance, or they might enlarge a part of a photograph to reveal the details of somebody's face. You know, this is really cool stuff that's being done with photography as well. Handwriting analysis started being studied extensively in the 20s. An expert could essentially look at whether or not two documents have been written by the same person. Even if the handwriting was disguised, they started developing these techniques for looking at this. There is a book that I would like to read called American Sherlock. And it's about Edward Oscar Henrich, which is one of America's first forensic scientists. And um, he was the first investigator in America to document the use of forensic entomology, which is establishing a person's time of death through the insect life cycle developing on their body. And he advanced the field of forensic geology, being able to link perpetrators to victims through the microscopic analysis of, of grains of sand and other such materials found on the victim, found on the perpetrator or Amazing. on carpets or whatever. So 
you know, all of this really cool stuff is is going on at this time. The first independent forensic science crime laboratory at Northwestern University was established in 1929. Eventually, this lab is now known as the Scientific Crime Detection Laboratory of Chicago. So just cool stuff. It's still very primitive as well. <laughs> and I'm sure a lot of it got thrown out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, can you imagine like now... Even in the pursuit of defense and prosecution, there's just so much more information to pull from that didn't even, that wasn't even considered prior. That's amazing. Sure. I mean, up until this time, you really just had hopefully seasoned detectives that had good interviewing skills, had good gut instincts, that we're just doing investigative work, but you know there wasn't this science piece to back it up, which we rely on so heavily now. Uh, and a lot of their lens was looking at people who were of bad moral character. You know, kind of going back to Lombroso, judging it sort of backwards. Like who are the, who are the bad characters in this neighborhood that could have done this, rather than following science or following evidence. So it was. I think it was a really uh, fast and loose time. In criminal investigations before this explosion of forensic science. Clearly. And at this point, back to our story, due to the condition of the body and without any other leads, the police felt that they were unlikely to identify the victim. I mean, also, here it is. It's a, not necessarily a real rural area, but it's a an uninhabited, unbuilt-up, non-residential area of Los Angeles, a body with no identification because, remember, the purse was on the seat of Alberta's stolen car at right, this point. Right, so there's nothing. There's nothing. On her, yeah. But there is a change in the case. Later that day, Under Sheriff Biscalouz returned to his office and found that he had received a call from attorney John Haas. And uh, the call said... I need to talk to you immediately, come to my office, which I guess was a thing that an attorney could order a law enforcement to come to their office, which would not happen today. Well, I, maybe I, they were like just across the hall from each other or something. Uh, yes, probably, probably. Uh, that's a good point. Yeah. So he walks, we'll just say he walks across the hall into Haas's <laughs> office and he says, Gene, I want to introduce you to the husband of the woman you want for the murder of Alberta Meadows. This is Armour L. Phillips, and I want you to hear his story. Oh, Armour turned. Okay. So Armour, he there's some sort of strategy going on. We don't know if he's a, a super genius or he was overcome by guilt or what. But Armour went to his attorney thinking that he would get some good advice and be able to vent himself of the guilt he was feeling. But Haas immediately was like, no, dude, you're you're accessory to the fact. Yep. We we got to get on this right now or you're really screwed. So Armour came clean. I mean, you can tell I'm using today's vernacular. I don't know. If that's like, <laughs> dude, Obviously. You're, dude, you're screwed. <laughs> also, can I, is this attorney, Mr. John Haas? Is of the Haas he, Avocados? Haas Avocado. All I can think about is eating an avocado now. <laughs> well, it is Southern California. It very is. well could be. Um, Armour, like completely fessed up, came clean, explained that he had scraped enough funds together from friends to get Claire to Mexico via the train. But the authorities just jumped on it really quickly, and Clara was apprehended in Tucson. The reporters that were there in Tucson, because of course, news is news as it was then and is now, they described her as being snappish and uncooperative, <laughs> even to the point of not denying of, of denying her identity. When she got to jail, however, she found really a new identity, and she must have really hit her stride. 
So remember the term you used or you explained to us in the last episode was sob sisters, which was the the emergence of these female journalists that would cover um, the incarceration of women who were uh, accused of these crimes. So the sob sisters were described... um, I mean, they were described as really doing their job with Clara. And here's a here's a quote from one of the newspapers. In the face of many extreme discomforts, she has taken everything cheerfully. She is tolerant. She has never yet uttered complaint, has never asked for anything, taking all things as they come without a whimper. In the Tucson jail, in her filthy and stifling basement dungeon, she passed two nights and two days. It reeked with vermin. She slept on a rusty iron cot with no blankets or mattress, only a few scraps of newspapers as her bed. She accepted the scant food without a complaint. Patiently, she waited in the midnight hours on the depot lawn for the train that was taking her back to Los Angeles. Wow, even I feel sorry for her. Right, you do. Like who, we feel sorry for this poor woman who is sleeping on a rusty cot and being given scant food and how how lovely of her to hold it together, you know, right? Yes, without that's what a, that's what a moral woman would do. Right. Yeah. So, let's let's not judge her for this awful uh, place that she finds herself in. And the author of this chapter makes a really good point about Los Angeles at this time. And so this is a direct quote. Even this early in the case, there is a noticeable tendency to identify Clara as the peculiar property of Los Angeles, an extraordinary civic accomplishment. Whether this was accidental or instinctive or by shrewd and subtle intent on the part of the press is past knowing. What matters is that it took hold and California had, and still has, a fierce, possessive, and embarrassing pride in what is her own. Los Angeles, with an unadmitted case of inferiority, has it quintessentially. Clara's innocence or guilt was aside from the point. She has been mistreated by strangers in a foreign and presumably spiteful neighboring state because Tucson turned out to be less than a score of people to cheer California's darling on. Her triumphant return was taken as a snub which in some quarters was never seen forgotten to this day. So I thought that was really interesting. I don't, I don't think that would exist today, but at the time, so it's yeah. long past the incorporation of U.S. Sure. However, the identity of Western states was not as homogenized mm-hmm. or or cooperative as it is today. I mean, certainly we can say still to say the same thing about Texas as Texas doesn't really... <laughs> they consider themselves uh, apart from and other than the U.S. as sure. being part of the U.S. So I think that that's what this writer is is commenting on. But that's really interesting. She was brought back to L.A. by train, and she was escorted by William Traeger, who was a congressman, as well as uh, bringing his wife along. I guess that the wife was brought along as sort of an escort. Mm. Um, she's now a guest in a compartment car, so she's got like a really high-end, you know, sort of sleeper thing to herself. And she's like sleeping well. She's going back and forth to the dining car. People are snapping pictures. And she's like the Instagram influencer of the time, basically. She's the it girl coming back from Tucson. But during one of her travelings back to the dining car, an L.A. Sheriff's Department detective stops her and confronts her with in the presence of another woman that's with him named Peggy Caffey. And the detective states, is this the girl you were out riding with last Wednesday? Peggy nodded and in the affirmative and said, this is the girl you saw strike Ms. Meadows on the head with a hammer. And again, Peggy nodded in the affirmative. So, right. So it seems like there's more than, than one entity involved in this. There's the people who are escorting her back. There's the press, there's law enforcement. 
but it was very interesting that they did that on the train. Like, why would right. you do that on the trip? Because that would entail picking up Peggy, transporting her halfway, switching trains to make that. Was it supposed to be because it was a, a contained environment? I don't know. Well, or I can, you know, so she has this deputy as her, uh, Peggy has this deputy as her escort, it sounds like. A few things, either they're doing it as a publicity stunt, like because they know press is there on the train too, or they want to catch Clara totally off guard and face-to-face with Peggy unexpectedly. So maybe her answers or her the way she presents or her affect is a little more true and caught off guard. So all of a sudden, if she's expecting to just go walk and get a cup of coffee and boom, there's her friend Peggy who... It sounds like up until this point, Peggy knows something about what went down that night. And then they confront her. You know, she's kind of nodding along with what Peggy's saying so far, rather oh, than yeah. getting it's, her story where, together. Or, yeah, thank you for saying that. Like, it, I think she was so surprised. I don't think that Clara really knew that she actually nodded in agreement, too. Is this is this the girl you were out riding with last Wednesday? And Clara nodded the same. Yeah, time it was like a gotcha, did. a gotcha scenario. Right. So, okay, so they're traveling back. They've had that confrontation. The papers are, you know, every LA paper is writing about her. They're making tons of descriptions about her clothing, about her look, how she's presenting. She's met at the train station by a huge number of photographers and journalists, and she's flashing smiles for photos and thanking them for the kindness. And the warm welcome that she got here that she did not get in Tucson. And <laughs> as she moved through L.A. to head towards L.A. County Jail, and at one point in front of the police department, uh, the stairs were so crowded that they had to carry her above the crowd, like sort of mosh Crowd bit. surfing. Yeah, crowd surfing her up the steps. What? So she now goes in. She's being fully questioned and interrogated by the police. Huh, I wonder what station that is. I wonder if it's the one that's in Highland had, Park that's the museum now. It has to be. Like, yeah. It has to be, which they use that really, they use the front of that for um, City of Angels, the, oh, yeah. the series. For everything. Which, yeah. So now Peggy is back as well, and she's being questioned, and everybody is not, they're giving Peggy the cold shoulder because she's the mousy little bitch who is, you know. Ratted on her friend. Ratted on her friend. This is just horrible, horrible. This is Clara's story. So Clara says that she meets up with Peggy. And Wait, she this said, is Clara. I'm sorry, Clara's story or Peggy's story? Clara's. Oh, okay. Okay. So Clara is now being evaluated or not evaluated. Clara is now being interviewed or interrogated by the police. And she says that she wanted to go out and meet up with her friend Peggy for some advice and support. And she says to her, I just don't know what to do. My husband is untrue to me, and it's just breaking my heart. And Peggy supposedly responds, I'm having trouble with mine, too. Why don't you come on over and spend the night with me, and we'll talk it all over. And later that night, Clara says she needs to go talk to a girl on the following day. And she also needs to make a quick stop by the Five and Dime where she buys a hammer. Okay, so Clara admits to buying a hammer. Right, but there and there's more to it. So Peggy tells the police that she had no previous acquaintances with Alberta, had never met her before. She said that she and Clara, she kind of confirmed that conversation that Clara had given to the police and that they proceeded to Alberta's home and they introduced themselves and asked for a ride to the other side of town, which 
is sort of inexplicable, but then more information comes up about why Alberta was so cooperative with them, is that later it's found out Armour had had a conversation with Alberta and said, hey, look, my wife is kind of nuts. So if she comes and talks to you, don't lose your cool. Just mm. be calm. Don't get worked up. Um, just stay cool. What do you think that means? He's anticipating she's going to lose her mind if Alberta admits to this affair. I don't know. I mean, he's prepping her for worst case scenario. Sounds like he's trying to buy some time before they run off together. And hey, if my well, wait, wife well, confronts no, you. Is, no, remember, this is before any crime has been committed. Right, This is like right. during the affair. So yeah, he's, he's, he's warning her. Yeah, he's saying, hey, look, if anything ever happens and my wife comes to you, play it cool. I kind of took that as like, he's he's kind of indicating my wife is 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 volatile yeah and most likely this will happen so you need to be prepared yeah this is interesting cuz i again like i know multiple stories but that the story that i read up until this point is that yes clara and peggy were kind of were drinking peg or clara was complaining about her husband and then they go to the bank to watch alberta leave from there and that's where they confront her and say, hey, can we like have this ride across town and are acting like really sweet to her? And and see, that makes so much more sense than my, my source material, because my source material is like they go to her house. But how would they know where she lives? That's that yeah. was one of the OK, I think your article is more accurate than ours. So they're on the drive. They're getting there. However, they've convinced her to give them a ride. They're now on the Montecito Drive. And Clara turns to Alberta in the little coupe. They're all crowded in the seat. And she says, hey, can we stop and have a conversation? I need to talk to you about something. So the car stops. They get out. And Clara turns to Alberta and says, these tires are new on your car. Who paid for them? And we don't know if there was a response back. And then she notices that there's a gold watch on Alberta's wrist. And she says, did he give you that? And finally, Alberta says, yes, he did give me the watch. And then Clara, in Peggy's word, she says she never seemed to be cross until she mentioned the wristwatch. Then she got mad. She began to chase Alberta around the small hill. And when Alberta bent down to retrieve her hat, Clara said, you certainly did pulled out the hammer and proceeded to pound Alberta's face, head and torso with the claw hammer that she had bought. She then got a nearby rock and slammed it down on Alberta's head. Ostensibly, I guess, to show like, or appear as though she had been killed by a rock slide. Yeah. From what I understand, there was also like almost a bigger boulder that she then kind of rolled over on top of her one to kind of conceal her from the road, but also... You know, it could look like she got smushed by some boulder on the so side of the hill. So just random rock that she threw herself yeah. on. Yeah. And I, there was an account that when she's chasing her, like poor Alberta, the heel on her shoe breaks. I mean, it's just like a, a scary movie, you know, and then she goes tumbling down this hill. And that's when she eventually catches up to her and starts beating her with the claw hammer. Right. So once I will say this also, that that picture does not, I mean, you know, the the poor picture, the picture of the poor victim, which is very sad, does not look unrecognizable. It doesn't look like her face has been crushed in or anything. But once again, so we get conflicting information about what mm-hmm. actually does the extent of the damages were, except that it absolutely did result in death. Well, and didn't it, it 
indicate so many lacerations on her face because she did get a nickname out of that, right? Oh, I don't remember. What was that? The Tiger Woman. Oh, that was what that came from. So is yes. it the claw, the claw into the hammer resembling... Uh, Tiger claw, scratches. Claw marks. Claw marks, okay. yes, yes. Well, I mean, there are some abrasions and lacerations you can see in the picture. It is... But it also says in one of the reports that she was disemboweled, which of course means taking, you know, to the to the viscera underneath the rib cage and in the yeah. stomach area. And I didn't see any indication of that in the the morgue shots. But um, so once again, you know, kind of confusing getting information from mm-hmm. from different parts. But very interesting that they used that her nickname became the the Tiger Lady. Yes. So guess who was in jail at the same time? Oh, could it be our other L.A. murderess? It was. Madeline Owenshane was already a celebrity for her murder trial, which is fascinating. Wow. There were other people in the women's ward of the county jail at the time. And there's a, a quote from a young woman. What's her name? Eleanor Madison. She was waiting in the county jail uh, for a trial on grand larceny. And when reporters asked her about, well, what's what's she like in jail? She says, although Miss Phillips and Ms. Obenchain spend most of their time together talking and reading to each other, everybody already likes Mrs. Phillips. The two women read the stories of the crime, which Miss Phillips is charged with having committed, but Mrs. Phillips never comments on the case at all. No one ever asked Miss Phillips about the case because we feel confident that she will not discuss it. She has met all the girls who are in the women's quarter and is very agreeable with them all. But she and Madeline spend most of their time together and seem to understand each other better. Miss Phillips smiles most of the time and laughs and talks. She speaks a great deal about her husband, and I can tell you she surely does love him. However, I think he treated her wrong when he squealed on her. I wish I might tell him what I thought of him. After meeting, Miss Phillips found out what a sweet woman she is. It makes me matter the more I think about her husband telling on her. Oh, she loves her husband, all right. She loves Clearly. him enough to kill this other woman. Yeah, I mean, it's it's also, like, is that really a true representation of an 18-year-old criminal? Grand larceny is theft, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. It's just one of these things. There's so much conjecture here. And certainly, speech at that time was more formal, in many ways. But it seems like to me that this was the reporter's interpretation of what this young woman had given her. Well, it sounds like she's talking about two girls bunking at summer camp or something. Yeah, exactly. That's what it is. Really, you know, sort of downplays the, the whole significance and, and, um, and violence that's involved in the crime, the perpetrating, uh, precipitating event. So Clara did have a history of violence. And this comes out during the trial. She had been a chorus girl, decided she needed to settle uh, an issue with several of her other co-workers. She's reported to have stormed into a cafe and just gone to town with her fists on a woman that she had danced with. And then another reports that she had a similar incident where she dragged another chorus girl from her car and beat her on the street. And then it found it came to light that she had beaten Armour's stenographer prior to their move to Los Angeles, as well as stabbed a man in a local theater. So, oh my gosh, this is a very impulsive person. Scott, I mean, there's no pettiness between dancers, right? I mean, this stuff never never happens. Never. (laughs) 
please tell me you have some juicy stories like this from your dance days. Nothing this violent. We have some fun stuff, but nothing this violent. We'll have to talk about that. You didn't go to town. You didn't go to town to anyone in a cafe. No, no, no. We just kind of, you know, snark and bitch at each other. That's what it is. Smacked each other. Yeah. Now the story keeps evolving and changing. So at the trial, Clara states that on Wednesday morning, she and Peggy were on their way to Long Beach, where Peggy's husband lived, and they had passed a store with hammers in the window. And Peggy remarked, once again, Peggy remarked, I believe I'll get one of those for protection. And Clara was claiming that Peggy bought the hammer. So she went on to say later that they met up with Alberta. They made a stop for Clara and Alberta to speak. Clara asked Alberta about her intentions with her husband, which Alberta denied. So they get returned to the car, completely resolved, like it's actually all okay. Clara and Alberta have, like, according to Clara and her attorney, everything's fine. And then Peggy turns to Clara and says, You aren't going to let her put those lies over on you, are you? Why don't you tell her the truth, Alberta? Why don't you just tell her you are out with her husband? And Alberta allegedly, re- you know what? I just want to stop for a second. I didn't know I was going to be acting again. Clearly, I know. <laughs> I threw it on you. I put it in red so that you would know that you were those lines. And I, I threw You clearly have, after our last um, acting experience in our last episode, you've done some work and I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> Please tell me this is the last time. <laughs> no, it's never going to end. It's never going to end. <laughs> Um, so Alberta allegedly responds with, well, what of it? Supposing I do love armor. He doesn't love his wife and can't get along with her anyhow. So Clara shouts, Alberta, you're dirty, just dirty as a dog. And Alberta reaches back and slaps her and they start to fight. Oh, Clara. Yeah. yeah, Here it goes. It's totally like it's on. It's on. Clara calls out for help from Peggy. And guess what? Peggy happens to have conveniently. In her purse. In her purse. She has a claw hammer. Oh, my gosh. So for then, protection. For protection. And, like, how lucky they are that they bought it right in time. So she, and then she allegedly strikes her on the head shouting, I'll mess her up so she'll never bother anyone's husband. So, Ooh. according to this narrative, it was Peggy who had clear, killed Alberta. And the jury struggled and came back. The all-male jury struggled yeah. and came back with a unanimous guilty with a sense of life in uh, life in San Quentin prison, and her lawyer, lawyer, Mr. Harrington, appealed immediately. So clearly, they were not buying this crazy story that right. the defense had made up. Poor Peggy. So a couple of days later, fifth of December, a matron makes her way up to the top jail cell. It's on the third floor, um, which is 150 feet in the air because not in the air, but on, in the building because it was a, a large building with atriums, um, and found out that Clara did not live there anymore. And the iron bars in the window had been cut with a hacksaw. And so that's something that must have taken at least a couple of days. It was a very rainy week with a lot of rain and thunder. And on further investigation, it showed that the bars had been done one at a time, had been stuck together and held in place with chewing gum. So um, Clara's liberator had come each night to rescue her. They found a few shreds of her dress on the bar and fingerprints from the newly you know, yes. th- this new technology leading on the windowsill, looking down on a 150 foot drop that could only be maneuvered by crawling around the corner on a small ledge to a 50 foot vent pipe down to another roof. Across that roof on a farther edge was a rope that went down another 50 feet to the alley below. So whoever rescued her got her out of there. It was an enormous scandal and made, it actually was a turning point in LA County about uh, jail safety. Like they had just never really thought of it in these terms before, you know, 
just not even well, thought about having to have that level of security. Especially a woman. Especially I mean, a woman. How could a woman get out of our jail? <laughs> well, I mean, I have to give her props too. I'm like, she's she was wearing a dress. She actually is wearing hey. the same clothes for the next few uh, yeah. points of this. So that's kind of amazing. So it turns out her rescuer was none other than this kind of weird, goofy fan stalker guy named Jesse Carson. He had speared her away back to Pomona. She later told reporters that on that night, she had woken to basically a face in the window of her jail cell, which would have been fucking terrifying. That's like uh, Salem's yeah. lot when Ralphie Glick is floating outside the window. That that 150 horror movie. Feet up. <laughs> I know. It just terrified all of us as kids. So here's his face of Jesse Carson. He's wagging a hacksaw in his hand with a big smile. He's like, I'm going to get you out of here. Um, so he gets her out. She hides out for a month in Pomona. Um, and at, at this time, Pomona really was out in the boonies. Oh, yeah. And there was, interestingly enough, where she was staying, there was a crime in, that took place in the house next door. So all of the local police forces were out there just within feet, and they could have arrested her. But... She was well sequestered. What in this year house. was this again? 1922. Because the two brothers that went missing in the Wine Hill, Wineville chicken coop murders were from Pomona. Wow. I wonder. No, that was later. Wasn't okay. it a little bit later? I think that's a little bit later. 5, 27. Yeah. Yeah. So she's been sitting in this house. She's been reading all the newspapers, seeing her face everywhere. Carson's like, I've got a plan. Don't worry about it. I've scraped enough money. I'm going to get us rail tickets to St. Louis. Then we're going to go to New Orleans and then on to Mexico. So he buys that and is smart enough to buy a big bottle of bleach for Clara's hair. The next day, she boards a train as a platinum blonde in big sunglasses and a turban, even though she was wearing the same dress that she had been wearing in jail. And on the train, she walked right past one of the detectives that had accompanied her on her first trip back to L.A., and he didn't recognize her. What's interesting <laughs> about this guy, about Jesse Carson, is as goofy as he was and obsessed as he had become for her, like, you know, mm -hmm. complete fan stalker, he had some strategy. I mean, this guy had a criminal background, but he had some strategy about how he was going to make this work. So do we know how he became acquainted or infatuated with her at all? That's what I can't find. Okay. I mean, you know, she was really big in the news, which is what we're going to be talking about even more when we do our watch party about how the flavor of the day, like a lot of these murderesses were fighting for FaceTime in the papers. It's like, I got to say something, do something in order to keep my, yeah. my profile up, which will better my chances in trial. So we don't huh. know a lot about his background. Well, we know a little, something emerges later that is very important. He, you know, clearly was able to make a plan to get them. And, oh, this is also part of the plan is that he got her to New Orleans found a room where he knew it was like a like a boarding house and they both conspired to be super friendly with the elderly couple that ran the boarding house the reason being that they used them to come to the departure of the cruise ship the transport ship to wave at them at the bon voyage in order to throw law enforcement off the trail. So it wasn't this single couple with nobody sneaking on a boat. Right. Here's this lovely elderly couple giving Bidding a farewell to their, yeah. their children or their grandchildren. Huh. So it's very smart, actually. 
And so when he got on the train with her, did he say, you take the blonde, I'll take the one in the toy bin. <laughs> Sorry. I know someone else was thinking, one, at least one other person was thinking that <laughs> from Young Frankenstein. I had to, okay. Probably just me and my mom listening to this episode. I that. love that show. Love that movie. Um, <laughs> so look, this brings up, so, I don't, I don't yeah. know if this necessarily fits this sort of paraphilia that we've mentioned in the past, but, you know, becoming obsessed unreasonably with criminals that have committed this Mm -hmm. level of crime does have a name. Can you give us a quick down and dirty on that? Yeah. Jesse Carson. Let's see here. Um, So habristophilia, it's, it's a paraphilia in which there's sexual arousal to being with a partner known to have committed a crime. And usually it's more affiliated with something horrendous like murder and or rape. It's also called the Bonnie and Clyde syndrome sometimes. Now, of course, the available research has been predominantly on women hybristophiliacs being attracted to male offenders. So think the fans sitting in on court proceedings or writing love letters to killers in prison. That's what we're talking about here. But of course, we're theorizing because when it comes to women, or in this case with Clara Phillips being the perpetrator and the hybristophiliac being a man, we just don't know because there is like zero out there because, you know, women don't commit these crimes as often as men. So again, it's always the same old thing that we talk about. There's just less to study. But generally, when we're talking about hybristophilia, the research asserts that hybristophiliacs are often insecure, have low self-esteem, and they've often been victims of physical and sexual abuse themselves. Again, caveat, these are usually women. But there's also the theory of them being love avoidant where they can be in this relationship, but they don't really desire a real possibility of ever consummating the relationship. And this is specifically like for the people who are writing people who are already in prison. So here they can sort of have this pseudo relationship with this pen pal person, someone who's locked up behind bars swooning over them while they get to go out and live their life and have their freedoms. I think that's a really interesting way to look at it. Catherine Ramsland, who's, we love Catherine yeah, Ramsland. a professor at forensic psychology at DeSales University. She also hypothesizes that some women seek fame by proxy with some of these more prolific killers, or they believe that they can change him. They can sort of tame this wild beast of a man. So there's... There's a lot going on with particularly these women that we see. You think the Ted Bundy and the Night Stalker and everybody that was fawning over them. Sheila Eisenberg is also someone who has studied hybristophiliacs, and she's an English professor and author of a book called Women Who Love Men Who Kill. And for the women that she researched, she found that all had been involved in early abusive relationships and that getting involved with an imprisoned criminal gives the women some semblance of power. So it's a chance for them. She said it's a chance for them to be in control, often for the first time in their lives. And she said, quote, they make the decisions. They're the ones with the freedom to come and go. Where he's just, you know, he's your boyfriend locked away behind bars and just tucked away for you to come visit whenever you want. So it's an interesting paraphilia for sure. I know there's been lots of talk about it in recent years, especially, you know, after the um, Zac Efron, Ted Bundy 
film came out, people were like, uh, having these weird feelings about this hot guy playing this person um, that has done all these horrible things. And it, it brought up all of the the lore around Ted Bundy. But that also existed for Charles Manson. Oh, yeah. Many male perpetrators. I mean, it's 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 not just because right. Zach Efron played that role, although a big deal was made of, and I think rightly so, like over-sexualizing these people that, that commit these horrible crimes. Sure. You know, but I, I like Ramsland's take on it. I'm not sure if this fits it or not, there's another factor that comes up that complicates it. Okay. But I do think that that Bonnie and Clyde aspect, maybe it's not the full set of criteria if we actually do have standard criteria, which I don't think we do. But um, so what was your, what was your wrap up? Do you think? Well, just, I, I think we have a guy who's clearly infatuated with Clara and I'm guessing that the press coverage probably had a lot to do with that. Again, he's coming to the table with his own mental health issues, I'm sure. And despite or maybe because of her vicious crimes, he's willing to go that extra mile for her and wants to be with her out in the real world so much so that he's helping her escape and running away with her. Right. And I, so I'm glad you said that because I have a theory that I want to, I think that he probably, from some of the things that emerged in just a second, is that he was likely somebody with a lot of grandiosity himself. So they're gone. And there's an an L.A. newspaper reporter who is very well known and has a great reputation for just figuring things out. So he dives into every record he can get his hands on, and he's digging into the money trail. So he is able to access Armour's bank account and sees that Armour has withdrawn $570 from his account. But where did it go? There's no drafts. There's no money orders that were seen purchased. The bank doesn't have any record. He writes a colleague at the Mexican Banking Corporation and asks for surveillance of any money transfers. So he finds out that there was money being sent to a Jesse from Galveston, Texas, through the Bank of Montreal. The envelope that that bank transfer was sent in was from a church in Galveston, Texas, where Armour's sister was teaching Sunday school. What? Right. This is, is some crazy? amazing forensic accounting that this reporter's doing, but right. what? I mean, can you imagine even trying to do that today? All of the legal things that you would have to jump through to, right. I mean, he was probably paying off bank tellers and all sorts of totally. stuff. So basically what it's saying is they track the money through these bank wire transfers or whatever the, 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 uh, what the, the method was at that time and found out that Armour's sister had been involved as a go-between. And by the time the Mexican authorities were notified, Clara had already been, uh, she'd already gotten out of the country and she's in Guatemala. Then they contact the Guatemalan, she's already in Honduras. So -hmm. she's generally just one step ahead. But by the time they were were able to find her, she was in Honduras and she was accompanied by Jesse Carson and her sister, Edder Mae Jackson, who had, I guess, just decided, uh, you know, my sister is going to be... Not, she's going to be in hiding for the rest of her life and I should be there to help support her. Wow. Which I guess was a thing that you would do at the time. So one of the things that's really important is the issue of extradition was really a big thing at this time, not only for Mexico, but for all of the, you know, the countries that were south of the border, the American border is, and especially Honduras felt a lot of rancor because they were getting all this pressure from the U.S. And they were like, 
why the fuck do we care what what you, the United States wants? It's just this woman. What's the big deal? So there was a backroom deal done by the U.S. to allow an American business in Honduras to pay a huge advance on their taxes due if the country would speed up the extradition process. So hmm. they really want her back. Yeah. Like, and why do you want? Why do they want her back? Well, because it's embarrassing as hell that she escaped. She escaped. I mean, like, it's a complete embarrassment that not only that it's an escape, but that it's you know, a woman that escaped oh, yeah. from L.A. County Jail. So they end up moving forward with all of this political intrigue and the tax payments. And at this time, Jesse Carson, he realizes, like, his number's up. He can't get anything moving from this end. But in interviewing him... They found out that he had fallen in love with Clara and he was convinced they would be the dictators of a small South American country after they had overthrown the government. And he had a history of shipping arms, like making Wait, illegal what? arms deals. Yeah, it's completely this is crazy. crazy. <laughs> but they still have to, even in their extradition process with law enforcement down in that area, they have to cross all these dangerous areas where there's like civil war going on. Sure. So at one point they have to pack her into a log canoe and uh, ship her across a lake, row her across a lake to get to city outside. I think it's Teguicalpa. I'm completely mastering that. I apologize. I apologize for that. Territory. I mean, it's a beautiful indigenous name and I'm not pronouncing it correctly. So over a series of discussions, the reporter who was named Levine, he convinced Clara, hey, look, we can make this all easier. All you got to do is waive the extradition deal. Like just instead of saying that you're not going to go and making everybody dance for you, just like give it up. I mean, don't you think you'll be able to prove your innocence? And she's like, oh yeah, I can. I wasn't given a fair trial. I know I can get back, get a fair trial, and I'll convince everybody that Peggy did it because Peggy was the one who committed this murder. If my attorney had only kept on cross-examining Peggy Cathy when she was on the witness stand, she'd have broken down and told the whole truth. I knew when he excused her that things weren't right, and I went to my cell that night and cried. So Levine, now knowing that they were in the clear and on their way, way back to Los Angeles, he says, um, your attorney's dead. He died the night he received news of your capture. Oh, boy. So, like, she... <laughs> I mean, there's a lot talking about his motivations, too, about why Ooh. he would be even interested in doing this. But oh, sure. she was met by thousands of people in the New Orleans port when she returned. And she was a celebrity. People were shouting, we're for you 100%, Clara. Texas is for you. We'll be there to the end. I guess Texas is supposed to, like, make okay. some kind of thing now, maybe because Armour's sister was living there. I don't know. All it's not, right. like, not like she had a gun or anything. <laughs> but now her confidence is really waning. And by the time her train stopped in Yuma, her husband got on and he was there to give her an embrace. You know, it was sort of like a, a photograph moment. All the pictures Dude, were taken of them embracing. Leave yeah. already. And by the time she got to Colton, where the, there was a, uh, a train stop at the time, she basically was just sort of withered and realized, like, my, this is, I'm up. Like, there's nothing else to be done. So uh, District uh, Attorney Asa Keys and Sheriff Traeger and John Richardson, her new attorney, were there to meet her. And she thought that she was going to be taken back to the county jail for a potential trial, even though Levine had said said that it wasn't going to happen. And they break the news to her that she's not staying there. She's going to go back on the train 
go straight through to San Francisco and then to San Quentin across the bay. Mm-hmm. And Miss Biscalouz, who was the wife of the undersecretary, uh, undersheriff, mm-hmm. had met her before and been on the train helping to accompany her the very first time she went on the run, basically sits with her to take her to prison and gives her a kiss on the cheek once she's off the train and walking through the gates of, wow. of the prison. Oh, how interesting. Yeah. So <laughs> can't she, imagine look, the sheriff's wife uh, escorting it, it's female bizarre. prisoners it's, at this time. Yeah, very different time. And she claimed that she was going to be a model prisoner. She goes, I know I'm going to be here for life, but I'm going to make the best of this. I'm going to be a model prisoner. And she was such a good prisoner that on April 24th, the next year, she was allowed release under heavy guard to go see her dying mother in San Diego which is kind of crazy. That stuff used to happen up until like even the early 70s. Mm-hmm. It absolutely does not happen anymore. I don't know any state that would... Yeah, the federal prisons, released. we're still doing it. I mean, not for murderers, you know, but for maybe computer crimes, white collar crimes. They would let offenders pick. If somebody was dying in their immediate family, you can either go see them before they pass to say goodbye, or you can go to their services. I did not know that. And that yeah. still, is and that you, still happen? Uh, well, it was when I was working primarily in that area, Okay, you know, 10 years ago, and U.S. Marshals would escort them. Interesting. Well, she apparently was a model prisoner. And um, 12 years later, she left prison on June 17th, 1935, remarried someone. We don't know who the name of that person was. And quietly disappeared from the limelight. Oh, man. Yeah. I did want to mention, too, that there was a big deal that was made about Alberta's murder. And her funeral was a very big deal. Like, a a lot of people showed up. Her coffin was covered with just, like, layers of roses. But for some reason, she's buried in a family plot, but an unmarked grave. And that might have been a choice to not draw attention to it. I mean, maybe the family was just embarrassed by the whole thing. But that is over in um, Glendale, and that's which is just one of the sort of... The Forest Lawn, right? Yeah, it's Forest Lawn. Well, it was called Slumberland. I think it's been incorporated into... Uh, well, at the now. top of the episode, though, you said where she was laid to rest, right? Yeah, I think you said Forest Lawn. Okay. At that time, I think it was called Slumberland. Ooh. Yeah. And, with, and if you go on findagrave.com, it says murder victim killed in a jealous rage with a claw hammer by the infamous tiger woman, Clara Phillips. Alberta's grave is in the Meadows family plot, but was never marked. Ah. Yeah. Jeez. Very sad. Very sad. It is. So mm. I, I, I'm interested. I mean, I think there was certainly like Jesse Carson, we can set up aside really quickly. I think he was probably somebody with super grandiose ideas about what he could accomplish in the world. I don't know. And I don't think we'll ever know how the connection came together. Did Armour know him? Did he approach Armour and say, I'll take care of this? How can we figure out a plan to make this happen? Armour apparently never faced any charges for paying somebody off or uh, transferring that money. Yeah. I mean, I, it's just hard to say all these years later, because I know Armour at some point was when he was trying to get her out of the country, he was looking, you know, maybe he, that was from him taking out money from before, but then there's a the connection with his sister. So did right. she reach out to the sister-in-law and say, Hey, just if you help me, get away. You guys will be rid of me. Right. And then there's the, also the biological sister of Clara at a May meeting her. So clearly the the family was in on it to an extent, but you know, this is, 
somebody with a history, it's cloudy and murky to go this far back in history with so many conflicting reports. But there does seem to be that Clara had a history of impulsivity and violence. Mm -hmm. She was disinhibited in terms of how she would act out against other women. You know, that's what we have the record for, besides the fact that she allegedly stabbed someone in a theater. Right. I mean, we we do have a pattern of behavior. We have motive and, you know, probably some antisocial traits there with her trying to throw her friend under the bus and um, run away, you know, not not own up to it. This is a very interesting case, especially all these years later. I mean, it's nice to have something so old that we can kind of like have a little bit of fun with as far as like just what is happening. Cause this story, I didn't expect it to like end up in South America and her in a canoe with an arms dealer. And it's crazy. I didn't know there were arms, international arms dealers in the (laughs) twenties. Wow. Well, interesting. This is, um, Certainly been a very fun series to do, and we covered a lot, but it's also just like the tip of the iceberg of the stuff that's out there. Yeah. Man, we could do a spinoff podcast on <laughs> just vintage crimes. Well, we may, I, we've been talking about this too, that we may alternate it. There's a lot of, there's a couple of things coming up for our next episodes that are more current that we need to jump on and yeah. um, dig into that we can be more factual and more relative to what our current understanding of forensic psychology is about. But I think coming back to these and looking things in a context of history is very interesting. So mm-hmm. we'll, we'll switch it up. I've still got 10 chapters left in this book that each one of them is just another what the fork type yep. of uh, crime that is mind blowing to me. Yeah, definitely. Get vocal content for days. So absolutely. if not here, then join us on Saturdays after we drop episodes and come chat with us live about some of this fun stuff. So thank you, Dr. Scott. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. So we've got our watch party coming up. Do you want to drop the date on that again? The 25th, March 25th. March 25th for Amazon. It does require Amazon Prime. It does require Amazon Prime in the U.S. I'm not saying that you can disable those across the uh, overseas with a Chrome extension. I'm not saying you can, I'm not saying you can't, not saying you should, not saying you shouldn't, but we would love to see you there if you can meet us. Definitely. And that one's for patrons only. So please join us. And I guess we'll talk to you guys next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye-bye. Bye, folks. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network, and each episode is hosted, produced, and edited by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our music, entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir, is utilized under a Creative Commons attribution license. Cool Vibes is composed and performed by the amazing Kevin McLeod, who graciously allows us to use this great piece of music. Please check out his YouTube channel at handle 1HMNC. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Please hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.
You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts.